Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Takui here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back to an episode that is incredibly special because it is brought to you by the editor of this podcast, James Lopez. James, thank you so much for contributing here to the episode. And it is going to be extra special because we are talking about the Borgias, the family that effectively had turned Italy into their plaything. And the reason I'm saying that is special and awesome for this is because we are still going to be leading a trip to Italy this next May, and there is one early bird spot that is still left for it. So if you are interested, please click the link down in the description below, and please join us on an extremely fun adventure. We're going to be having a lot of fun with it. Now, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode, and the Borgias. So how do I, from the beginning, go and explain what happened through the lives of multiple generations of a family tree? Because we're not just talking about an individual person, which is something that we've done about multiple times before. We're starting to talk about an entire family. The Borgias are not just a family. They are, they are an icon of Italian history. And in order to talk about them, we have to go and talk about their roots. You see, when we're talking about the Borgia family, that begins with none other than an individual by the name of Alfonso de Borja, which it's not Borgia at this point, it's Borja, because they're not Italian. This was a guy who was born on New Year's Eve back in the year 1378. And in what is the first surprising twist of this, as I said, he's not actually Italian by birth. He was born near Hativa in the kingdom of Aragon, which is one of the kingdoms that is on the Iberian Peninsula. That is the kingdom that would end up uniting with Castile and that would create Spain. So Spain didn't even exist at this point. You had the Spanish Peninsula, but that wasn't a thing. It was still separate kingdoms at this point. And he was born in Aragon, close to the modern-day Valencia that is in modern-day Spain. So now Alfonso, when he was born, he was baptized at St. Mary's Basilica in Ativa. And there he was later honored with a statue that was built in his memory. But that is much, much later on in his story. Before we go and tell the rest of that story here, it is very important that we sit back and explain a little bit of, well, you know, what my favorite part of any episode when I go on all these rants about anything is. Historical context. <laughs> you know exactly that this is what I like to do because it's important that we set up really the setting of what ends up happening with, well, the world. The world needs to kind of be explained. And this was a time where it wasn't just Spain that was separated into different kingdoms. You also had Italy. Because Italy was not Italy as we know it today. It wasn't a singular country. It wasn't a country that was known as a land of models and Vespas. It didn't have a national identity that was steeped around marinara sauce, which I, I say Is that, that actually Italian marinara sauce? No, it's not. 
like it technically is now, but that's the whole thing. Tomatoes were not in Europe at the time. Tomatoes are a new world discovery. Like it, tomatoes and potatoes both come from the Americas. So did they get tomatoes and they went, haha, pasta sauce? No, for the longest time, they thought that tomatoes are poisonous. Many people thought that tomatoes were poisonous until going into like the 1700s, essentially. Isn't it because it's from the nightshade family? Yes. Yes, because the nightshade family. And also people would be eating tomatoes on like like when nobles would have it on pewter plates, pewter plates, which a component of that is lead and tomatoes being highly acidic um, would leach the lead off of the plates that upon consuming it, they would get lead poisoning. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> like there are reasons there was science behind it. Flawed science, but it was still a kind of science, to be fair. But as I said. This is a time in which Italy is divided into all these different little kingdoms and duchies and individual city-states, and it's entirely fractured. It is something in which all these individual locations are controlled by powerful families whose goal, well, as many families when it comes to politics or things like that, are to gain as much power and influence over the regions as possible. As an example, if we talk about Florence, which is one of the most famous cities, that was under the influence of the Medici family, which we honestly should do an episode directly about them too, because there are a whole bunch of these families that are fascinating. And these are the guys who would obtain their wealth and power via the, uh, the world of finance. These are the ones who became the master bankers. These are the ones who handled the wealth for the other powerful ruling families at the time. They, God, I can't even remember how many they did, but they backed like the financial campaigns of several popes. It so, was a really big thing for them. The Medici family was not a royal family. They were just a wealthy family. Correct. And they just married royalty. Correct. They, Gabby. Imagine being so rich that you just become a queen. So I know I'm going to talk about it for it here, but here's the thing about finance and the Catholic Church. You know how banks charge interest for things? Yes. They couldn't charge interest. Because it was against the religion. Correct. So instead, what they would take as payment would be rights over certain things you would give money for privileges so you got the same money back eventually but simultaneously over the course of that tenure you like for some of the families owned a silver mine that was actually owned by a noble but they got to run it and because it's a person that is running this establishment you have the actual business acumen to know how to use it versus oh yeah send the peasants in there let them hit rocks like, they were much smarter about the business and control than any of the people who'd previously been in charge of things. Or they would do things like trade away money for privileges, as in, like, yeah, we'll back this campaign, but, you know, we're going to marry into the royal family afterwards because it's very important. So, yeah, Catherine de' Medici, she eventually goes and uh, takes a bunch of charge. But that, that, that's a whole other thing. You have the Medici family, you have the Sforza family, which is another one that that wasn't even a noble banking family. They were like a family of soldiers and they rose up to become de facto controllers of the city of Milan. It was a huge thing. I think if I recall correctly, later on, uh, one of the guys Sforza would end up becoming the Duke of Milan, but I might be entirely wrong about that. I'm just remembering that off the top of my head. You had clans like the Della Rovere family from Genoa who attained some influence in the papal states, which papal states, it wasn't just Rome that was controlled by the Pope. The papal states was a whole swath of territory along the middle of Italy that included Rome in it, but all of this was de facto controlled by the Pope, hence the papal states. And speaking of Rome, 
One of the families that we're going to be talking about in here inside of Rome itself was the resident Orsini and Colonna families. Oh my God. You know how there's the whole thing with Romeo and Juliet and like their families that are feuding and all that? Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that, but Hatfield and McCoys in like Kentucky here in the United States of just straight up murder everywhere. It is a family that was feuding with each other and murdering each other quite literally since ancient Roman times. Why? Power and prestige in the city. You have to understand that the early days when it came to the papacy, the Pope wasn't someone that could just be elected from anywhere within the church. For the first like 400, 500 years of the papacy, in order to be elected Pope, you were Italian. And you weren't just Italian. You were Roman Italian. Like you were in Rome. Your family was from Rome. Everything was Rome. So you had two major noble families effectively within Rome that were constantly competing and fighting with one another over power and prestige. And one of the ways that they fighted was literally over control of the papacy. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, but also, I didn't, politics and religion. for some reason, I thought you still had to be Roman Italian to be Pope. So no, no. In fact, oh God, why? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember who the first Pope that was not Italian. And I, it's, it's bothering me that I cannot remember that now but it was like a really big deal when that happened and it's one of the things that would cause feuds among others as that was one of the only things that kept a degree of stability even though it's St. John Paul II St. John Paul II I just googled that okay got it (laughs) so there was a degree of stability in the sense that the Pope had to pretty much be Italian otherwise they wouldn't get elected but once you had other Popes from outside of Italy getting elected Then you had all the competing noble powers around Europe that were competing to try and get their candidate from their country onto the throne of like, you know, the the papal throne. Big, massive mess. Either way, that is something that would continue on for those families for years, and it would not be stopped until a papal bull of 1511 would actually stop it. Okay, so this whole thing is a like huge mess, but I think it was Gregory V because he was the oh, first. Oh, you looked it up. Yeah, he was the first German pope. <laughs> first, oh, German. Oh, like Holy Roman Empire. Okay. Oh no, that actually makes a lot more sense but there's, here. Is there's a lot. Okay, you know, I, I looking at the list in here, I can see everything lists Italian, but then it also says Roman, and it says Roman, but it's like Eastern Roman. Okay, if anyone wants to clarify for that for us, if there is actually a definitive. <laughs> answer it might actually just be Gregory V like you said because it's German because then really what constitutes Roman in the sense because they're looking at Eastern Roman but then you have people that are Greek so it's it's a bit of a mess anyway so as I said that that family ends up finally stopped fighting in 1511 after a papal bull and that's the level that it takes in order to be able to stop them yeah you know from straight up murdering each other for approximately a thousand years yeah, yeah, that, that's the state of Italian politics. It's the people beefing with each other in the streets, just like you would expect in the movies. Yeah. Either way. That's just politics. Actually. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. That's just <laughs> politics. So politics plus Italian plus uh, people with lots of knives. And there you go. There's, there's the mix. Now, you go into the south and the southern half of the Italian boot, and that's actually not divided into a whole bunch of different little kingdoms or duchies or anything like that. You have a big kingdom itself, the Kingdom of Naples which at that point, the, you had two different major powers that were trying to take over it. Uh, you had, I say Spain, but it wasn't exactly Spain. It was Aragon and the Spanish crowns were effectively trying to take it over along with France. But there's going to be more about that later. 
And then just to the north of the Papal States, you had the Duchy of Ferrara, which was based out of the cities of Reggio, Modena, and Ferrara. And then up further north, near the Alps, you had the Duchy of Savoy. And then to the northwest, you had the Republic of Venice. And to the northeast, we should, or no, sorry, northwest. That was northeast. And then Savoy was to the northwest, because now I'm confusing the whole land thing, because this whole region is divided into a massive mess of different states. And then all these different territories heading down the Dalmatian coast, running along the Adriatic Sea and the east, that is also controlled by Venice for all their other little trade outposts in what is today modern-day Croatia. There is a lot of competition that is going on between these different groups, with a lot of different families that are fighting each other for power and influence in this place. But... Where are the Borgias? Exactly. The Borgias are not mentioned here because, as we said earlier, they weren't Italian. These guys were outsiders. They were foreigners who barged their way into the old Italian aristocracy and ultimately the papacy, and they did this by any means possible in order to secure their legacy. And that is why Alfonso de Borja was a very unlikely candidate to go and start a dynasty, but he does. How did everyone in Italy feel to these outsiders from Spain of all, Iberia? From Iberia of all places. You know, it's an excellent question. That is an extremely good question. And I am going to answer it because it's a feature that is later in this. I'm going to spoil it slightly right now by saying, because at first they thought he wasn't a threat. They thought he wasn't a threat because they, they thought the other Italian people and rival families were more of a threat. And we're going to explain that here because it's, it's, it's a whole interesting dynamic that makes it sound like a high school politics with a much greater level of murder involved. Much greater level. Oh, yes. No. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, going back into his history, as a young man, Alfonso went to the University of Leda, where he would study canon and civil law, and then after his graduation, he would become a professor of law at his alma mater. Now, soon, though, after this, Alfonso would end up embarking on a career in politics, and he would enter into the service of another guy, also named Alfonso, but this guy was a king. It was Alfonso V, who was the king of Aragon. And Alfonso not only at this point was dabbling in secular politics and dealing with stuff for the royals, but he also had his hand in ecclesiastical politics. He was messing around with stuff in the church, oftentimes with two of these different fields overlapping. And because he was involved in everything, 
that meant him, well, meant that he was a very valuable person when it came to regional control influence. And at the time that all of this was going down, the Aragonese were attempting to take over the kingdom of Naples. And so Alfonso goes and joins the other Alfonso, and they march off to Naples. And there he gains a lot of valuable experience. As an example, one of the things that he ends up doing, because he is both in touch with his ecclesiastical side and also the civil side, is that he reconciles the king of Aragon with the pope at the time, Martin V. Like he intercedes on his behalf to repair their relationship, which is very important and gains him a lot of influence because he had, like, if you're talking about a society and kingdom's relation to the church, that's massive. Do you remember what one of the punishments was that could happen um, if you displeased the Pope in medieval times? Oh yeah. He banishes you from the church. What's that called? Excommunication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you know what the worst version of that was? No, you could get excommunicated, but it wasn't just the person, the king, the Pope had the power to excommunicate an entire country. Like a kingdom. So what would happen on occasion, and this happened multiple times in the case of the Holy Roman Empire, like the Holy Roman Emperor or or like when it came to uh, England, it happened before to them is that it happened to England. Of course, it happened to England. So the Pope could excommunicate the entire country if the damage was bad enough in terms of their relationship. And then ultimately, uh, that meant that any person that died inside that kingdom was then sentenced basically automatically to hell was like the idea was that that belief of it is like they were out of the church. They were excommunicado. They were done. It was John Wick for your soul. Basically, it was bad. Are you kidding? No, no, I am not kidding. And so when that happened, that was like the ultimate declaration of war. That was the ultimate ultimatum. I I don't even know how it is that I would phrase that. It was the final straw. And when that would happen, almost inevitably each time, unless you forced the Pope out of power and installed your own Pope, the King would end up crawling on their hands and knees to the, to, to the, to the Pope begging to be taken back because their own people would turn against them and put their head on a pike to return it to the church. They're giving the, I don't want to say they're giving them too much power, but come on, that is a power trip. You can't just excommunicate the, it's like, here's the thing, here's the thing. The king pisses you off and I don't want to get into religion, but the king pisses you off. So you excommunicate all of his subjects, right? But it literally says in the Bible, the sins of the father are not the sins of the son. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, come on, Pope, what you doing, Mm -hmm. bro? Yeah. So what they would do, here's the thing. I, I also I exaggerated a little bit when I had said that, oh, if anyone died inside of the kingdom, that they would be uh, like they would just automatically sentenced to hell. That's not true. It, it, the reality of it was um, more in touch with the politics side. So what would happen is that the only ones who were allowed to do baptisms were, you know, members of the church. So what would happen is that if the country was excommunicated, the papacy, which was the only thing that was allowed to appoint bishops and like the actual church members would withdraw all of them from the country. And with no church, that means that there's no new baptisms. So without baptisms, any newborn children would then not be baptized. And if they died afterwards, the belief was then, of course, sentenced to hell for all eternity, which was like a horrifying thought for so many of the common people. Yeah, yeah, it's even worse. (laughs) 
Lovely. That is how Lovely the church stuff. would exert its power in some cases. Yes. Um, so th- that didn't happen here in this case. He reconciled the relation between Alfonso and the Pope. And as I said, this was extremely beneficial for him in society. So in 1429, Pope Martin then goes and appoints Alfonso as the Bishop of Valencia. And in the years that follow, Alfonso would then continue to serve the crown of Aragon. And at one point in time in this, because they're in control of both territories, he ends up getting based in Naples, which, you know, they conquered in order to reorganize its government. On another occasion in 1439, Alfonso was the Aragonese representative at the council that sought to reunite the Western and Eastern churches. This was when, you know, it was Catholic and Orthodox then, and, and the split had long since happened. So there was this whole council to try and see if they could bring the churches back together. And although this undertaking would ultimately fail, like obviously, since we see what ends up happening here today, Alfonso would at least succeed in seriously impressing all the people in the council. Like all the delegates were extremely impressed with him, which increased his standing even more. Okay. My question, how did people get government jobs in this time period? Like, did you just um, go get a politics education? Did you just walk into Tesco and be like, hey, I'm here to learn politics? There are multiple ways, which arguably some of them are similar to the methods that we'd have today. Uh, in some cases, you straight up bought your position. Like you just gave a bunch of money to the king and they appointed you as like the sheriff of whatever or something. You know, you, you could get something like that. Or it could be a case of you're appointed based because you're the son of a specific noble or family member and daddy was owed a favor by the king. Or that or or your dad bought your position from the king if it all goes back to money once again. Or it could be before that, you know, you like you did a favor or you were you were actually valuable in your society and you you they needed that specific skill set that you had. Like in the case of Alfonso. The fact that he was in touch, he wasn't just that he was owed favors, but he was in touch with both the civil side of law and also ecclesiastical law meant that he was the perfect layperson to go in between the church and the state. Yeah, because I was wondering, you're like, oh, yeah, he was um, being an intermediary between the pope and the king. And I'm like, why are they trusting this random man from Iberia? Yeah. Because he had demonstrated ability and he like he was successful already. And so once you have some success, you're you, you get used further. So, I mean, if he had failed and all of that, we probably wouldn't be talking about his story at all. But he it worked. So he did it. So any, either way, he he is in Naples now at this point, and he carries out negotiations between the king and the pope in multiple circumstances. So in 1444, he is awarded the position of being a cardinal. Because remember, I, I guess you just asked about before about how you get this position. So, again, because of his ability, because of what he did, he got appointed as a cardinal before the Pope, the highest position that you could get to inside of the church. And in exchange for papal approval over his hold of Naples, the King of Aragon then would agree to defend the papacy against its enemies in central Italy. And then having been made a cardinal and really starting to embrace being newly Italian, if you want to say that, Alfonso moved to Rome in 1445 and then changed his surname from Borja to Borja. Like it became Italian because no longer was he just, you know, the Aragonese representative. He was fully entrenched at this point in Roman politics and being Italian. He was Nepalese, if anything you wanted to say. That, 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 that was under the control of Aragon and that's what he was. So 
Then something big happens. On the 25th of March, 1455, Pope Nicholas V dies. And a papal conclave then follows, and Alfonso, our boy Alfonso, gets elected to be Pope on the 8th of April, 1455. And this is completely unexpected by a lot of parties around Europe, but it makes complete sense as to when it happens inside of Rome itself, and we're going to explain that in a second. But he goes and takes on the name Calixtus III. He was chosen for a couple reasons. One, he was old, really old. He was not expected to live very long as at the point that he was elected, he was in his 70s. And this is the mid 1400s. The mid 70s is already an incredibly old age. So it was not expected that he was going to last. The second point, as I said earlier, is that his election was seen as a compromise between the competing powers and families within Rome. Remember what we talked about, the, uh, the Colonas and the Orsinis, the murder hobos that were attacking each other in the streets? <laughs> that is what I'm going to refer to them as because all the descriptions of them make them sound like a bad D&D party. Oh, like a mafia movie. It really does. And that, th- the whole election from him was seen as a, as a kind of compromise because the families are looking at each other and they're going, well, I want to be elected. Oh, yeah, well, I want to be elected. Well, I don't want you to be elected. Well, I don't want you to be elected either. Well, I guess we'll elect this other guy then, and we'll just watch each other. Okay. Literally, that's it. He was the first non-Italian pope to be elected. Well, I mean, no, because this was earlier that we talked about um, uh, Gregory V. That was in the 900s. This is 500 years later. Ah, darn it. Yeah. So this this is 500 years later, but he is arguably, in my opinion, I don't know if this is actually correct on this. He is the first guy that was elected as a... Meh, well, I guess we might as well. I think he was more of a, they're killing each other and we want them to stop. So you're up, but. Yeah, no, it, it really was. His whole reason for being elected was specifically so that the families would be able to have a short time period before the next election while they tried to build up their power base. Again, because they didn't expect him to live very long. And in the meantime, while he's ruling, because he had no connections to the city, because he had no real power base, because he was an outsider. He wasn't really expected to do much. And then this way over the next like six months to a couple years, the families would be able to build up their power in order to try and seize back the papacy once he dies. That was the plan anyway. Ultimately, though. He would actually do kind of decent. He would do some pretty, I'm not even going to say neat stuff, but he was very active for the short reign that he did have. He was seen as safe and not being able to do all that much damage. But immediately, as soon as he gets elected, one of the first orders that he does is he launches a crusade. Why? Well, he tries. (laughs) It doesn't actually work. The whole plan is to recover Constantinople, which had just fallen in like the previous few years. It had just fallen to the Ottomans. And this whole bid doesn't work. It fails. The crusade does not end up happening. But still... He was able to assemble a papal fleet, which allowed them to free a bunch of the Aegean islands from control of the Ottomans and preserve that control. And on the whole, Calixtus, as I said, wasn't really that bad of a pope. In his younger years, he wasn't really a bad clergyman. He's recorded as only having one church appointment at the time, which I'm going to say this right now is actually kind of a big deal because one of the things that would end up happening is people were double booking appointments like they're the bishop of this and also the bishop of that which is not good because it was seen as something that they would try to use to increase their power base so he had one appointment 
He wasn't really a bad clergyman. He was honest per the records. He was sober, so he wasn't involved in a lot of drinking parties or anything like that. And his personal life was supposedly blameless. So he was just a good guy. It seems that way. He was okay. Sort of. There was a flaw, though, apparently. Though if you want to call it a flaw, considering it's medieval times, we can't necessarily really say that. According to his enemies, he was extremely corrupt. And the corruption in this case was specifically nepotism. That's the word. He, he had a lot of nepo babies, essentially. I mean, if you're a pope. Yeah. And you have kids. Wait, he had kids. Yes. He had to have had kids. He had kids before he was involved in the church. Okay. So popes could have kids. You can have, you could have a family. You could be married. You could have children. And if, let's say that you felt a calling for the church and the Catholic church, you could leave your wife, leave your and, wife your and join the church. Yes. Right. Right. Awesome. Love yeah. that. So the, the term or the requirement of celibacy is not a requirement of your entire life from birth until death. It's from the point that you enter the church. So technically speaking, you could have a person who partied and lived up their entire like youth and just fathered hundreds of children. But I don't even know what I would be describing. But here then at that you point. won't get elected pope. Uh, in this time period, you might. And we're going to be getting into that here later when talking about the Borgias. Okay, well, nepotism isn't the worst crime. You know, if you have a connect, yeah. use it. Well, this was going to be the constant sin that was going to kind of follow the Borgias over the course of their rule. Because when we're talking about nepotism, nepotism was already commonplace. It's the medieval time. And as I just, or medieval time going into Renaissance. But as I literally just said, this is the time in which everything is determined by your wealth and family connections. The word's origin itself actually stems from the Italian word for nephew, nipote. So nepotism, nipote, that, that's where that is. But Calixtus really took this idea and ran with it. As an, for instance, as an example, one of the things that he did is that he promoted his two nephews, Pedro and Rodrigo, to the rank of cardinal. Actually, wait, now I'm trying to remember this. Did he have children before this? Because it was actually his nephew that would end up taking. No, I'm spoiling it. I need to be quiet right there. I'm not going to say it, but I, I am going to spoil this here. But the short of it is that he gave a whole bunch of appointments to his family members. And when he did this, this was actually something that was very scandalous because even if he is regarded as being honest and upright, his children or not his children, his nephews were not. Gabby, these guys, Pedro and Rodrigo, they were in their 20s at the time and they had not held any prior positions of any significance in the church. Like looking at this pragmatically, right? One could argue that nepotism was the best way that you could build up a power base in those days, especially when you're a foreigner who has no contacts or power within the general region and you have attained the church's highest position in the first place. So you need to secure your own power. But it was still pretty bad because these dudes, these two guys who were in their mid 20s, like they are younger than us. They were straight up party animals that would bed pretty much anything that they could touch. If it was feminine, they were after it. And that is the whole point. They were generally just but committing massive debauchery. Yes. Well, that's going to go well for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. Go great. So these guys were committing debauchery all across Rome. But despite the fact that they were total party animals, they were actually good. And I don't mean good morally or anything like that. I mean, they were skilled. They knew what they were doing. 
and got better at hiding other parts of their lives that they shouldn't have been doing. But Rodrigo ended up being sent to a difficult position as a papal legate, and he was rather skilled and successful at this. Pedro ended up being given an army command, and the promotions and wealth that came from this ended up flowing into the family. Rodrigo would gain status and respect in the church as a cardinal on the rise, and Pedro ended up becoming a duke and a prefect, while other family members would also be given a wide range of positions. And when King Alfonso died, Pedro was sent down south in order to seize Naples, which by treaty had defaulted back to Rome. Now, critics of Calixtus believed that he intended to give Naples to Pedro. However, matters then came to a head between Pedro and his rivals over this, and he had to flee from his enemies and died shortly after from malaria. But in aiding him, Rodrigo demonstrated a physical bravery and was with Calixtus II when he died in 1458 that earned a lot of respect from the people around him. And as expected, since we talked about this earlier, Calixtus did not occupy the papal throne for very long. He only reigned for three years. He did all of this in three years. All of that in three years. A very tumultuous time period. Launched a crusade, failed at the crusade, took back the Aegean Islands. Th- that's a lot. Yeah, no, he did a lot. So he was able to accomplish quite a fair bit because apart from trying to launch the crusade, which didn't work, he also uh, reversed Joan of Arc's trial and ended up claiming her as being innocent. Because mind you, this is after the Hundred Years' War and we could do probably do an entire thing on the Hundred Years' War and specifically Joan of Arc. But she was tried as basically being a witch and was executed, and he reversed that, instead declaring her as innocent, and then he issued several papal bulls regarding Portugal's maritime explorations, as well as elevating the Feast of Transfiguration to become a feast day in 1456 to be celebrated annually on the 6th of August. The, the Feast of Transfiguration, for anyone who is unfamiliar with stuff within um, like Christianity or the Catholic Church, that is one of the miracles of Jesus, where when they're praying on a mountain, uh, Jesus begins to glow with a massive light that has been, uh, I think, given to him by the uh, Archangel Raphael. If I recall correctly, that's what it is for the start. I know that it's when he's on the mountain and he's glowing, and I'm trying to remember the exact details I'm so sorry. I'm useless here because I'm not Catholic. (laughs) Okay, but that's the whole thing for the transfiguration, right? And coincidentally, Calixtus would actually die on the day of transfiguration in 1458. So, you know, something to be remembered by. Interestingly enough, he was not actually buried in St. Peter's Basilica, which is where the, uh, the tombs of most of the popes are found. Instead, his final resting place is a chapel in Santa Maria in Monserrato degli Spagnoli, the National Church of Spain in Rome. And in the papal conclave following Calixtus' death, Rodrigo was the most junior cardinal in attendance. So you're going to think, okay, nepotism, is he going to be elected? No, but he does play a very key role in electing the new pope, Pius II, a role that would require a lot of courage and also gambling his career. He invested a lot of resources in making sure that this guy was elected, and that political gamble worked. And so for this young foreign outsider who had lost his patron, his father, or not his father, his uncle, who was the pope, Rodrigo found himself now a new key ally with the new pope, and was confirmed as vice-chancellor. Now, to be fair, Rodrigo was a perfectly capable person, and he was good in this role. But again, he had a lot of flaws. 
He uh, really loved women, he loved wealth, and he loved glory. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I don't really know what else I could say there in that regard. Like the man was, uh, the man had ambition and was not necessarily a good fit morally for the church. He thus abandoned the example that his uncle Calixtus had and instead set about acquiring as many of the resources and lands and anything possible that he could get in order to secure his position. So it didn't matter if it was castles, bishoporics, money, whatever, he went after everything he could. He also earned official reprimands from the Pope for his licentiousness. He slept around a lot. And Sir Rodrigo's response to this was not to stop. No, 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 no. Why would he stop? No, instead it was to just cover his tracks better the next time so that he didn't get caught. And so over the course of the decades, he would have many different affairs, including one with his primary mistress, Vanoza Catani, with whom he had four children, including a son by the name of Cesare in 1475, who we're going to be talking about later, and a daughter named Lucretia in 1480. But the total number of Rodrigo's children is rumored to have been at least eight. Eight that we have confirmation of. He would continue to serve in his role as cardinal under the next four popes over the course of the next 30 years, biding his time, building alliances, earning favors, and the support from many in the church and also the prominent families of the time, doing everything he could to essentially establish his power base. And from this, he gained experience and wealth over the course of the years, waiting for his chance to finally seize power. Then it happens. 1492, Pope Innocent VIII dies, and the three most likely cardinals to succeed him are Rodrigo Borgia, Ascanio Sforza, and Giuliano della Rovere. The outcome of this papal conclave was not something that was dependent upon the, quote, moral character of each candidate. No, no, no. It didn't matter how good of a Christian they were. What was important was how much money all of them had and could offer in bribes to everyone that was placing votes. You know, just like modern day politics or anything like that. Literally, like a modern day politician or a sport agent that was making handshake agreements and fervent promises of repayment in order to secure a vote, they were out doing as much business as they could. Supposedly, he managed to convince Sforza to drop out of the race by offering him four mule loads full of silver. Where? What? Yeah, again, wealth, money, that's what was important. And in the end, it was Rodrigo that won. He took it all. And from this, he would take the papal name, Alexander VI. 
There is a popular legend that states that when he realized that he had quite literally bought the final vote that he needed, he jumped in the air, raising his fist, crying, I've done it. I'm the Pope. I love that. Well before the actual election. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Funnily enough, it started out pretty well for him. Like his papacy got started pretty nicely in contrast to his uh, predecessor's reign, which was marked by complete anarchy. Alexander administered justice very strictly, and he put an orderly form of government in place. Moreover, he really impressed the Roman population by displaying great splendor with the papacy. He was a huge patron of the arts, which we're going to be getting into in a bit. But the way that you impressed the Roman public was through public spectacle and art. And that was something that he really keyed in on. Alexander had widespread public support and was capable. He was diplomatic. He was skilled, as well as being rich, hedonistic, and very concerned with making as big and bombastic of a display as possible. <laughs> like, the man, the man knew how to throw a party, basically. And while Alexander at first tried to keep his role separate from his family, his children would soon very much benefit from his election, and from this, they would receive huge amounts of wealth. Cesare, as an example, would become a cardinal in 1493, and relatives would arrive in Rome and get rewarded with whatever positions or privileges or things that they wanted. And the Borgias soon became a very, very powerful family inside of Italy. While many other popes had been nepotists, Alexander went significantly further, promoting his own children instead of more distant relatives, and from this would have a massive range of mistresses, something that went further and fueled a growing and negative reputation that he would have over the years. Because think about it, his uncle had given his nephews appointments and had also appointed cousins and other people. He ended up banging a bunch of mistresses, having a bunch of babies with them, and then just giving them all big positions. So not only was he having sexual relations when he wasn't supposed to, he was having relations outside of wedlock and producing bastards. He was then using his position as Pope to give them all of these positions in the first place. The man was so incredibly corrupt, way more so than anything that his uncle Calixtus had been. It was not good in that regard, even if the family was skilled. I don't even know how else to describe it. Like, other popes had mistresses, they did, there was always previous scandals and relations, but none of them had been nearly as upfront about all of it as he was. Well, this is what's making, okay, all I could think is, imagine the actual, genuine Italian families looking at this, like, you see what happens when we let outsiders in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You want to hear one of the most screwed up parts about all of it that makes literally no sense for anything within the church? Apparently, at one point, Alexander even threatened to excommunicate one of his mistresses if she returned to her husband. I mean, what else was he supposed to do? What else was he supposed to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Pope is threatening excommunication from within the church of returning back to the sanctity of marriage. I'm not saying that he's right, but I'm saying I understand why he did it. Yeah, yeah. So over the years, Alexander would have to navigate away through all of the different warring states, the families that surrounded him. And at first, he tried negotiation, including the marriage of a 12-year-old child, his daughter, Lucretia, to the, uh, uh, why can't I remember his name? 
Giovanni, Giovanni Sforza, like from the Sforza family, when we're talking about it here before, he married his 12-year-old daughter, bastard half-child, not half-child, but bastard daughter, to a nobleman in order to try and secure as much power as he could. And he had some success in this from diplomacy, right? But didn't last very long. It was very short-lived. Meanwhile, Lucretia's husband, even though he was supposed to be a fighter and defending stuff for the papacy, yeah, he wasn't a very good soldier. He ended up fleeing in opposition to the Pope, who then had the marriage annulled and had Lucrezia claim that her husband <laughs> wasn't able to consummate the marriage. Okay, but isn't his Forza family the militaristic family? Yeah. Yeah, that's not good optics for that guy. Yeah. Yeah, not only is it not good optics for just in general, but um, wasn't able to consummate the relationship with a 12-year-old child. It was back in the day. Yeah, but even then, even then, considering the day for nobility, you still didn't consummate the marriage until older. Oh, well, that's then the they weren't actually married, so it was fine. Yeah, well, that, that, that's the whole point of this. So it's like a double-edged sword of damned if you do, damned if you don't, for how people would kind of view you. And... Accounts then claim that Lucrezia's husband was so infuriated by this assault on his virility that he denied it vehemently. So he claimed he did, in fact. He totally had relations with that 12-year-old. Yeah. History is so bizarre. I know. I know. I, I don't know what else I could say regarding that. That's just the outright truth. What the heck? Yeah. So after a series of events, including Giovanni fearing for his life and fleeing Rome and then charging paternal and fraternal incest by Lucrezia. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that they turned around and said was that uh, the reason why she was listening to her father, like the Pope so much is because uh, she was having relations as a child going into a teenager with both her brother, Cesare, and also with her dad. That. Yeah, yeah, there was charges of incest that were going on there. So Alexander asked Giovanni's uncle, Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, to persuade Giovanni to just agree to divorce. And since the marriage had supposedly not been consummated, the Pope declared that the marriage was not valid. So he then offered Giovanni all of Lucrezia's dowry in order to seal the agreement so they would just give that up. And the Sforza family threatened to withdraw their protection of Giovanni if he refused Alexander's offer. So having no choice, Giovanni Sforza then signed both a confession of impotence and the documents of annulment before witnesses in 1497. Like, imagine that. Imagine, I'm saying this, I'm going to use very crass language when I say this because as a joke, I need you to understand the scope of what we are talking about here. The Pope who you have married his 12-year-old daughter, has been withdrawn from you because you suck at fighting. So they tell you that, hey, no, we're taking back our daughter and your dick doesn't work. So he then tries to fight them, but then his own family turns on him, takes the money from the Pope and says, boy, boy, look, look, look at us, look at us. Just say that your dick doesn't work. And then has to sign a written, like a legal statement saying that he is sorry and that his dick doesn't work. Okay, so anyway, moving on from the whole impotence thing, he does more things for his other children. Like, 
He made one of his sons Giovanni a cardinal and also the Duke of Gandia. The lands that were destined to be fiefs of the newly created duke included Cerveteri or Cerveti and Anguillara. And the latter of this had been acquired not too long ago by the Orsinis, like that rival family that we talked about before, with monetary aid from Ferdinand I, who was the king of Naples. And of course, because we're talking about something that at that point is a conflict of interest, consequently, Alexander would then come into conflict with Ferdinand. So the Pope would go on to form alliances with the king's enemies and would even then from this encourage the French to come down and invade Naples. Because totally we can be best buddies with the French because we're totally not to, trying to screw over the sovereignty of anyone down there in, uh, in Naples. Totally not. Yeah, that was going to be a back and forth thing over the years that was going to create a lot of headaches. Unfortunately, when it came to his son, Giovanni Borgia, he came down with a very sudden and surprising case of a serious illness. Getting stabbed a whole bunch of times and being thrown into the Tiber River. Why? You, Gabby, did we not just describe everything that was going on in Italy with cutthroat politics and what was going on here and the enemies that these people were making? Yeah, but what would killing his son do to, like, stop him? That didn't matter. It was a blood feud. Okay, valid. End them. That was the whole point. And it, one of the ugliest rumors that came from this is that the other son that he had, Cesare, that Cesare had actually killed Giovanni, but it's unlikely that that was ever the case because Cesare, even though he is a brutal individual, he was simultaneously exceptionally smart and very understanding of if he had done this to Giovanni, who was Alexander's favorite son and commander, that that would have really jeopardized Cesare's position. So more than likely, he did not do this. But with Giovanni dead, that position of favorite son and his commander, well, that honor and the rewards, those were now diverted to Cesare, who, when this happened, then wished to resign from his cardinalship and marry. See, I say that kind of funnily because he was still sleeping around the entire time that he was a cardinal and a member of the church. That didn't matter. But now he could legally do it if <laughs> he got away. Were so they the, all sleeping around while oh, they were yeah, members absolutely. of the church? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but the Borgias were a much more, what's the term? Exceptional is not even the right word. Extreme. They were a much more extreme case of pretty much everything that could be going on in Renaissance Italy. I love their uh, dedication to consistency across the generations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And although Cesare was Venosa's eldest child, he was actually Alexander's second son. The, which, you know, we should have clarified because Giovanni was the oldest. But the funny detail about that is because he was the second child, that meant that he was supposed to be destined for a career in the church. Like, that, that's the custom of what was supposed to happen. If you were from a noble family, your first son would take over the lands and the business or whatever it is you had. And then the second son, or possibly the third, depending on where it is that you were, but most often it was the second, the second son was the individual that was going to be going into the church because that's how you spread your familiar power even more. So it wasn't just the secular side. You also had power in the ecclesiastic side. So that, one of the sons had to be in the church. Correct. Correct. It was how you spread your, pam your family's power and influence. And the church was a very wealthy and powerful force in the first place. What if you had no sons? Well, good luck, Chuck. Like you uh, hoped and prayed that your daughters would be able to marry powerful and influential people but you still wanted a son to carry on your family legacy this sounds so complex yeah yeah you're welcome to medieval and dynastic politics 
that is the reality of the situation. But the the funny thing is, so he's trying to get out of the church now, but he was able to do this in the first place because while Alexander was still a cardinal, Pope Sixtus IV had given Cesare a, dip, a dispensation. And when that happened, that cleared the illegitimacy of his birth, thereby allowing him to then be able to pursue an ecclesiastical career. So only two years later, when the boy was merely seven years old, mind you, Cesare was then made a opalistic prothonotary. I, I know I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it, you, you, I'm going to explain this. Essentially, prelates in the Roman Curia who could perform certain duties with regards to papal documents. It was a glorified paper pusher boy. That, that, that's what he had the position of. But it was still something that at that age, he should not have been able to get. And also, canon of the Cathedral of Valencia. And then at the age of 16, 16, mind you, he is, he is a full just teenager. Cesare is then made the Bishop of Pamplona. And in the following year, when his father became Pope, the Archbishop of Valencia. And then finally in 1493, Cesare would rise to the position of Cardinal. That is a rapid, 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 rapid rise to power. I his, can't even begin to describe how quick that is and how that should not happen. His career started at the age of seven. Yes. Seven. Okay, remember when I said nepotism? A little nepotism isn't that bad. I take it back. I take it back. What? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Cesare, from all this, the reason why he was pushed as hard as he was is because he represented the future to Alexander, partly because the, the other male Borgia children were already dead. They were dying or getting killed off or just weak. They didn't have the intellect. They didn't have the capability that Cesare did. And Cesare would fully secularize himself in 1498, getting out of the church to pursue his more uh, noble and martial career. And this move to give up a cardinalship, I'm, this has never been done before. This is, un you do not give up a cardinalship. Priests have given up the church to go and marry. Like they have left. That has happened. Bishops have even done it before, though much more rare. But a cardinal? A cardinal was the highest position in the church below the Pope. That was not done. Oh, that clarifies so much. This whole time I was mixing up cardinal and bishop. So I'm like, oh, is that really a big deal? Yeah, no, he really was a big deal. And he was immediately given replacement wealth as the Duke of Valence through an alliance that Alexander brokered with the new French king of Louis XIII. This being in return for papal acts and aiding him in gaining Milan. Cesare would also then go and marry into Louis' family and was given an army. And this was going to be a key political marriage that had been arranged between Cesare and Charlotte d'Albret. King Louis immediately named Cesare as the Duke of Valentinois. Val Valentinois? Valentinois? It's a French name. It's in southeastern France. And this would secure his future nickname of Valentino. That, that, that's what that would be. And his wife became pregnant before he left for Italy. But neither she nor did the child ever see Cesare again. Did he die? Oh, well, we're, ha. Huh. Okay, I'm going to kind of explain this here in the first place. For anyone who might recognize the name off the, like, the top of their head, Gabby, do you remember Assassin's Creed? Which one? Yeah, well, the, the one that skyrocketed into fame, the Ezio trilogy. Yeah. Ezio d'Aldatore. Yeah, the one everyone's played. Okay, so you have Assassin's Creed, like, uh, uh, two, but 
when you see Assassin's Creed Brotherhood and you're fighting the Borgias and you have Cesare in there, that's where this comes from, right? So if anyone is familiar with those games at all, um, he, he leads a very, very brutal but relatively short life. We're going to kind of explain this. See, Louis was successful. And Cesare, who was only 23 but had an iron will and strong drive, then began a remarkable military career that would develop into, as we talked about, one of the best villains in the Assassin's Creed franchise like ever. I, I will honestly say, when going back and talking about those games, seriously, if you have not played the Ezio trilogy, in my opinion, the best Assassin's Creed games of them all. Black Flag and others are fun, but those are the pinnacle of what was the original Assassin's Creed. Seriously, this dude was incredibly evil and intelligent in this. Every time you would see him on the screen, it, it was like, um, it's like, I, I don't even know how I would be able to describe this. The hyenas on Lion King saying, Mufasa, whoa. Like, <laughs> he was, he was good. And by good, I mean, he was incredibly bad. Also around this time, there was a young Florentine diplomat by the name of Niccolo Machiavelli. Like Machiavelli, 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 Machiavelli. Yeah. For anyone who recognizes that name off the top of their head, that is the guy who would create The Prince, the, the book that was used as a kind of, not guide or pamphlet, that's not even the right word, a... Brochure? Yeah, the brochure, but like what would you even call something that was going to be used, like a series of guidelines effectively for how a prince... SOPs. Standard operating procedures. Yeah. He created the standard operating procedure for how a prince should rule their territory, how a noble should in Renaissance Italy. In, so when you look at something and describe it as Machiavellian politics or uh, blends of realism with brutal reality and truth, that is Machiavelli. And it was all done in the name of stability and control. And when he came into service of Cesare, he idolized this guy. And eventually he would base the work of the prince directly on Cesare. So when you'd see about how a ruler should act, that was Cesare. That, that, that was essentially a love poem to him in his skills. Cesare seemed to have a lot more influence over his father at this point. And those after papal appointments and favors would find it to be more profitable to seek out Cesare rather than trying to go through just the church. He also became captain general of the church's armies and was a dominant figure in central Italy. He was bold, he was aggressive, and he wasn't even 30 years old yet. And the man was at arguably the peak of strength. Murder was common in Rome at this point. And many of the unsolved deaths were oftentimes attributed to Borgias and usually from all this, Cesare. He was willing to do anything and everything in order to maintain power. Meanwhile, his sister, Lucrezia, she was married off at the age of 18 to the 17-year-old Alfonso, the Duke of Biscelli, or Bisegli, it's another Italian name here. This was um, another territory where the child was the, the illegitimate son of Alfonso II of Naples. And because of the issue that they had with Alfonso and the previous, or not Alfonso, Ferdinand in the previous years. Yeah, relations between the Papal States and Naples was not exactly the best. So they were trying to do what they could to improve that. 
However, they just married her right back to the same family. Oh, yeah, no, she was her entire purpose over the course of her life was to be the marriage tool to improve relations. That was it. Yeah. Well, that plus from that, she was the eyes and ears of the Pope wherever. Like she would exert the power and influence of the Borgia family in whatever family she would get married into. That was her entire purpose. Interesting. So the unfortunate thing, however, is that after Cesare's alliance with the French king Louis XII and his subsequent campaign in the Duchy of Romagna happened, this threatened Naples. So Alfonso fled Rome, returning with Lucrezia in October. And while visiting Lucrezia's family in July of 1500, he was wounded by four would-be assassins on the steps of St. Peter's Basilica. Lucrezia, worried that her father or her brother were responsible for this, refused to leave his side, and while recovering, she was called away by a messenger, and while she went to see what it was, her husband reportedly ended up being strangled by one of Cesare's servants. Wait, why would her brother kill her husband? There's a number of different reasons as to why, whether for power, for influence, to get her. There's a lot of theories behind it, but that murder broke all peaceful ties with Naples as it had been intended to. Also, how did they know it was her brother? It could have been random people. He could have been framed. Well, perhaps, but the murder, as I said, broke all peaceful ties with Naples, which appears to have been the goal was to just end the relationship and sabotage Naples as much as possible. Lucrezia and Alfonso of Aragon had only one child, Rodrigo, and that child was destined to die before his mother in August of 1512 at the age of 12. See, enemies of the Borgias claim that Lucrezia killed her second husband, and it's true that Alexander and Cesare were quite fond of poisoning as a way to kill their enemies. It was well known that Alexander frequently would give his daughters gifts of clothing and jewelry, and it was said that Lucrezia had a hollow ring that could be used to contain poison to be doled out while preparing a drink for the victim. Now, Alexander, for his part, never stopped partying over the years. He absolutely would not. And regularly, over the time, he would indulge in excesses of, well, every single type of thing that you can imagine. It was even said, and this was a rumor, mind you, that he and Cesare would host all-night orgies called the Banquet of the Chestnuts, where 50 of Rome's best prostitutes walked around naked in a giant feast and picked up chestnuts and brooches and other items off the floor without using their hands. Wait, the Pope did this? Well, it's one of the rumors, mind you. A lot of the stuff that when people talk about the debauchery of the Pope is that he made so many enemies over the years with all of his corruption and everything that he did that there were a large number of things that he did do. Like, we are aware of a lot of the stuff for his affairs, among many other things, of the assassinations, of a lot of the other items. but. A lot of the stories that are attributed to him, if they did occur, are likely horribly exaggerated. So he may have thrown an orgy. He may have. No, oh, he probably had orgies. Um, he just probably didn't do it with 50 of the best prostitutes of all of Rome in front of everyone. So back then it was super lax. Like you could be Pope and you could have a little sex party. Technically speaking, you were not supposed to, but you kind of could. The, the problem... You, Who's going to challenge you? Th Who's going to challenge you? That was the point. You're the and Pope. By this point in Renaissance Italy, that is really what the church had fallen to. Do you ever realize as to why, like the time period when we're talking about here, Gabby, this is 
late 1400s going into the early 1500s. Remember Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation? Yeah. How it's only like 30 years after this? Ah, uh, that checks out. That, that actually checks out. Yeah. So when people are talking about the excesses of the Catholic Church and what was going on at this time, this is a prime example of exactly what they're talking about. It's, it, it truly is insanity. And so the reports can't be confirmed, but oh my God, it would appear that Pope Alex VI had um, a lot of fun at those parties, like publicly in front of everyone. I, I'm not going to use words to describe exactly what it is that you know exactly what it is that I'm describing. I think everybody does. I think everyone does at that point. So, okay. With a substantial war chest from Alexander, Cesare would go on to conquer and at one point march to remove Naples from the control of the dynasty who had given the Borgias their start in the first place. Like, remember how the Borgias were, were uh, initially Aragonese, and so it's the Aragonese crown that put their grand, wait, great uncle would be the term, because it's not their grandfather, it's the brother of their grandfather, so it's the great uncle. Um, yeah. That's initially where they got their start, but that wasn't going to be happening here because they wanted to drive out the influence of the Aragonese to have control of everything themselves. So they're going to drive them out of Naples, which is their hold in Italy. So when Alexander goes south in order to oversee the division of land, Lucrezia gets left behind in Rome as regent. And the Borgia family then gains great amount of land for the papal states, which were now concentrated in the hands of one family more than any other previous rulers or dynasties that had control of it. It was all in their hands. And as this happens, Lucrezia gets packed off to marry Alfonso d'Este in order to secure support for Cesare's conquest. Yes, they she, just she's getting married, married off again. Yes. Every single time they need something, they're like, hey, girl, you're up, please. <laughs> exactly. So Alexander now moves towards the creation of a Borgia duchy of sorts in northern Italy, like its own kind of state. And the Pope deposed all of his vicars in the provinces of Romagna and March and Cesare with a number of Italian soldiers supported by around 300 cavalry and 4,000 Swiss infantry provided by Louis XII, then go and march on Imola and Forli in Romagna. These towns were ruled by Caterina Sforza, the mother of the Medici military leader, Giovanni Dalle Bandenere. Isn't that the guy they killed? No, 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 no. This is, this is a, another one. Oh, there's see a lot of Giovannis. People. There's a lot of Giovannis. There's a lot of, like, there's a, it's a lot of Italian names that are repeated again and again in history. You're going to see that a lot. So Caterina goes and seeks relief from Florence against the approaching French army. But Florence was threatened by the Pope, so she was left alone to defend herself. She immediately began to recruit and train as many soldiers as she possibly could find and began to store weapons, ammunition, and food. She reinforces the defenses, especially that of Ravaldino, where she resided, which was already considered a really tough nut to crack, almost impenetrable. And from there, she also sent her children to Florence in order to protect them. So on the 24th of November, Cesare Borgia arrives in Imola. The city gates were opened by the inhabitants, and he was able to just take possession of it immediately. After having conquered the fortress where the Castellan Dioni Naldi de Brisichela had resisted for several days, and after seeing what had happened there, Caterina asked the people of Forli if they also wanted to capitulate to Borgia, 
or if they wanted to be defended and endure the resulting siege. Because the people hesitated in answering, Katerina then absolved the citizens of Forli of their oath of fealty and sealed herself inside of Ravaldino. She was not going to let them fight. And on the 19th of December, Cesare would take full possession of Forli and began the siege of the fortress. Katerina repeatedly refused all offers of peace from Cesare and from the Cardinal Riario. In response, Cesare offered 10,000 ducats for her, dead or alive. Katerina tried to capture Cesare when he came near the fortress to talk to her, but the attempt failed. And so for several days, the artillery of both factions would engage in, in mutual bombardment, blowing the hell out of each other, and Katerina's cannon would inflict heavy losses on the French army. But the French artillery damaged the defenses of her main fortress. What was destroyed during the day was then just rebuilt during the night. And as time passed without any decisive results, Cesare had to change his tactics. His troops bombarded the walls of the fortress continuously, even at night. And after six days, they managed to open up two breaches in the walls. On the 12th of January, 1500, his forces then stormed the fortress. The bloody battle was quick and decisive. Canarina refused to surrender, fighting with weapons in hand until she was captured alive. She then surrendered herself to Antoine de Say, who was the bailiff of Dijon. As a prisoner of the French, she knew that there was a law that would prevent French forces from holding women as prisoners of war, so this was the plan that she had. Unfortunately, since they couldn't hold her, they just decided to find a loophole and hand her over to Cesare. Surprisingly, Cesare didn't actually have her killed, probably because the only reason he was given charge over Sforza was under the condition that he treat her as a guest and not as a prisoner. So it kind of works out for her there. After the conquest of Imola and Forli, Cesare's French troops were then withdrawn from him, but he returned to Rome to celebrate his triumph and received the prestigious title of Papal Gonfoliene, the uh, papal protector from his father. In 1500, gifts to the Pope associated with the creation of 12 new cardinals gave Alexander enough money to hire the forces of the powerful Condottiere, which the Condottiere, those are the uh, mercenaries effectively of Italy that would side with whoever, whatever leader of whatever city would have just paid them for conflict. It, it was a whole thing. Italy was filled with mercenaries at the time. I would love to do a podcast episode on that. And so under Cesare's command, these forces would serve to renew the campaign to expand the papal states in Romagna. And oh my God, would they do it? They would win over and over and over again. Giovanni Sforza, the former husband of Cesare's sister Lucrezia, he was soon ousted from Pissarro. Pandolfo Malatesta ended up losing Rimini, and Faenza too would surrender its young lord Astori III Manfredi, who was later drowned in the Tiber River by Cesare's order. Yeah, remember that whole thing with assassinations and poisonings and drownings and all that. They did a lot. Cesare needed to chill the flip out. Nope. Eat a moon pie. Stop murdering people. Nope, that was how he maintained power and that's how he got more power and that's what he was going to do. So in May of 1501, Cesare was created as the Duke of Romagna. The man was simply living his best life. He was at his peak. And Lucrezia's third marriage at this point, this would help consolidate her brother's position in Romagna by opening the road to Tuscany, which was an important trade route of the day. This third marriage to Alfonso d'Este, the Prince of Ferrara, that was actually one that ended up lasting. Amazingly enough, he didn't just die, and she ended up bearing him six children. 
the fall of the power of the Borgias, though, was still going to happen. They didn't end up taking over Italy entirely. It would eventually fall. And it would begin with Alexander's death in 1503. And all of this despite Cesare's immense capabilities. You see, in the hot Italian summer, the Pope likely caught malaria or some other kind of disease from a mosquito bite. Cesare was able to fight all of the enemies of the papacy easily, but he couldn't fight disease. So Cesare, who was also at that time gravely ill from malaria, he also was sick, was planning the conquest of Tuscany, but he couldn't do anything about it without continued papal support in terms of men, resources, and everything. And as we said, Alexander died. And the new pope, Pius III, did support him, but his reign was short. And this was then followed by the ascension of the Borgia's deadly enemy, Julius II. And things immediately went sideways for the Borgias at that point and fast. Remember what was going on here before about the person who was in charge of everything here in the Papal States was the Pope. As long as the Pope was a member of your family or an ally to your family, you were safe. This was no longer the case. So while moving to Romagna in order to quell a revolt, Cesare was seized and imprisoned near Perugia, and all Borgia lands were subsequently acquired by the Papal States. After exile to Spain in 1504, followed by imprisonment and escape, Cesare would join his brother-in-law, King John III of Navarre. And on the morning of March 11th, 1507, during a siege of the Spanish town of Viana, Cesare and some troops were giving chase to a group of enemy knights, and he pursued them into an ally, or an ally, an alley, thinking that his troops were just right behind him. The knights then realized, hey, wait a minute, he's alone. So they turned around, dragged him from his horse, took all of his belongings, and then stabbed him like 25 times. He ran way ahead of his forces, got surrounded and killed. He was only 31 years old at the time, and he left behind a wife, one daughter, and more than likely at least a dozen illegitimate children. Okay, we just have to say. It ended that quick for him. Well, his grandfather, his, was it his grandfather, his dad? His, so his, his father was the Pope. His great uncle had been the previous Pope. And they or had one no, of the previous Popes. They yeah. didn't put anyone in power to take the position of Pope once he died? Because once he died, Pius II took charge and Pius II was an ally of his family. But then Pius II ended up dying way quicker than they expected, which resulted in the ascension of Julius II, who was the enemy of their family. Wow, you really had to have a backup to your backup. Correct. No, that's literally what happened. That's exactly how it happened because you needed to make sure that all, everything was put in place. They didn't have the time, the money, or the resources to be able to buy the next election. Okay, I think underrated hero of this entire story is Lucre- Lucretia. Lucrezia. Lucrezia. Yeah. Um, she really carried this team. I'm so sorry. They were sending her after man, after man, after man, and she followed through. She pulled... Except for that second one where she didn't want him to kill him. I guess she liked him? Yeah, I guess. Either that or it was all an act. We're not exactly sure. Either she liked him or she killed him. We don't, we don't know. Maybe both. Maybe both. It's, it's the Middle Ages slash Renaissance, and that could definitely happen. I think that tracks into modern times, too. Yeah. You like him till you kill him. Oh, absolutely. But Cesare's fall from grace was extremely quick when this all went down. 
Meanwhile, Lucrezia, no longer needing to play a major political role at the court of Ferrara, which had become a center of the arts and letter of the Italian Renaissance, she was then able to live a more normal life and just turn to religion in her final years. She became a highly respected member of the community, known for her good taste and patronage of the arts. And that's really it for her. She would still die relatively young. She would die on June 24th, 1519 at the age of 39. This being due to complications during the birth of her eighth child. She was having kids at 39. Yeah. Yeah, eight especially children. And for that to happen back in the day, that was actually old to have been having even more kids at 39. Yeah. Other members of the Borgia family would go on to achieve some minor successes, but none of them like Rodrigo and his kids. Francis Borgia, who was a nephew of Rodrigo, would actually be made a saint a few decades later. But that's really it. There really wasn't anything else that would happen for the Borgias in regards to major historical events. Inevitably, the problem with talking about the real facts of the Borgias is that a lot of the things, as I said earlier, that are attributed to them, a lot of the craziest of parties and all the details, these were likely things that were attributed to them out of rumors, hatred, spite, jealousy. How dare these Spaniards, these foreigners, come in and take over the world, if only for a couple years? They were outsiders who had conquered the church, the upstarts from Valencia who had worked their way up the ladder of the church hierarchy. But inevitably, they demanded way too much, way too quickly, and ended up being ran out of power for it. But still, those rumors when talking about them, like in the case of the, uh, the, the Feast of Chestnuts, those are some pretty juicy details. Not gonna lie. It's one of the reasons why whenever you look up any of the articles online that says like, oh, top 10 most infamous popes or like church figures or whatever, the Borgias almost inevitably always top the list. But when you're looking at those online articles and the things that they list, it's like 90% just a rumor or hearsay. There is literally nothing that they have in there that supports any of it actually happening. Okay, I have a confession to make. I don't watch a lot of TikTok history people because of specifically that. Remember yeah. when early on you were like, oh, like I would just be blocking a bunch of like history creators. Yeah. Because of that, they would just be saying that exact just regurgitated stuff they googled and it was like top 10 fun facts i mean come on bro yeah so um not only is it lazy in the first place on what people would present but simultaneously a bunch of it would just be either outright wrong or a sensationalized sensationalized half truth yeah that is just it's not actually helping anyone and just contributes to the dumbing down of society i would argue yeah, I watch like, I don't even watch your videos. So I mean, it's not. <laughs> Wait, that doesn't go well for me, considering what we literally just talked about. No, but no, no. I just, I have to listen to you make the video. Yeah, it's true. You're in the room when I make them. So that makes sense. That makes sense. That's why every time I do a video on a topic, I, it, people get really confused when they look at shorts or other things like that and go, oh, it's a 30 to 60 second video. That can't take long to create. And then in my case, I'll sit down there and I will actually work on something researching it for a good 15 to 45 minutes before I make the short because I'm verifying the information that I'm talking about that I, it's actually substantiated. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, either way, that is the end of today's episode. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. And I know we said this in the beginning, but I will say it again here at the end. Please do make sure to check out the links down in our description because we are still leading a trip to Italy. It's going to be a crazy amount of fun and I really would like to see the lot of you there. 
We're going to Japan here this November, and we're going to Italy in May. And then if the Italy one gets booked out, we're planning on setting up even more trips to places like Peru. So please, by all means, check the link down in the description. There's still one early bird spot left, and I promise you won't regret it. You're going to have a lot of fun with us. All right, before we go, I did forget that we do need to do our family history here at the end of this. So this one uh, comes from Daniel McDonald, who sent a message in that says, and I quote, this is a very funny first line that he, put the, uh, that he puts in here in the email. My family history is something of a clusterfuck. <laughs> That's the opening line in all of this. So on my father's side are, are Kashubian Poles. The village that my grandfather descended from is in what is now north central Poland. They spoke a distinct dialect of Polish and had their own traditions. It's also one of the first areas to be partitioned under Frederick the Great as early as 1772. My family continued to live there under Prussian rule until the 1890s, where they left due to farming disputes. My great-great-grandfather, Martin Favich, then moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where there was a burgeoning Polish population at the time. So skip forward a couple generations, and my grandfather, David Favich, goes and enlists in the Air Force and was stationed in West Germany in a cannon fodder town a couple kilometers south of the East German border. My father and his twin brother briefly grew up there before moving back to Greendale, Wisconsin. On my mother's side of the family are Scots Irishmen, and my grandfather, John McDonald, was a district attorney in Livingston, Montana, turned law professor. And his younger brother, Alan McDonald, but we call him Uncle Pete, was a part of American history. He was an engineer who worked for Morton Thoykel, a manufacturer of rocket boosters used in space shuttles. On January 28, 1986, he was the sole missing signature from the orders to greenlight the launch of the Challenger. The one that exploded. The one that exploded. 73 seconds into his flight, the O-rings on the shuttle's right side booster had failed. And those O-rings had been manufactured by Morton Thoykel. And Allen was aware of the issues with their ability to function properly when below certain temperatures. The Challenger's launch had been delayed multiple times due to unfavorable atmospheric conditions in addition to other repairs, and the higher-ups had pushed for a cold launch because of each day delay costing literally millions of dollars. And so after the explosion, Allen spoke out publicly against NASA's cover-up attempts, and he still prevailed, testified, and made the truth known to everyone the gargantuan negligence that cost the lives of seven astronauts. When the dust settled, he was given an honorary doctorate from Montana State University and became the vice president of Morton Thoykel and was then put in charge of the efforts to redesign the booster rockets. He worked there until he retired in 2001 and then passed away two years ago in 2021. That is actually incredible. Wow. Thank you so much, uh, John. Not John, I was about to say John, but I know that was the relative in here. Thank you very much, Daniel McDonald, for sending in that. I really appreciate it. And for anyone listening who wants to send in your own family histories, please do so because these are always incredibly interesting to learn about. Thank you, everyone, and have a good rest of your day. Bye.